You can be seated. Hi, my name's Alan Starner, and I'm one of the elders here at Daybreak Church, and we wanted to give you a, uh, an update. Uh, this year, as an elder team, we decided instead of holding Membership Matters forum meetings, which were, just really weren't convenient for our members to attend, that we'd visit home groups and to gather feedback from them. Members of six home groups first completed a survey about their involvement in the church and how Daybreak is doing helping them develop a 3C lifestyle. We received lots of great feedback. Elders then followed up the surveys by visiting these home groups and discussing their responses with them. Daybreak elders found this to be very positive experience, and we learned a lot from it. Through these home groups, gatherings, through these home group gatherings, other forums, and conversations, we've worked diligently at listening and gathering feedback from you. These discussions have helped us inform some direction for us moving forward, and I'd like to share a couple of these changes with you. You've let us know that you enjoy all the different weekend speakers here at Daybreak, but we've heard also from you that it's most helpful in your spiritual development to hear from, to hear from and engage with consistent voices on both campuses. This helps you build relationships with your pastors and for you to know who your leaders are. As a result, starting this fall here at the Gettysburg Pike Campus, you'll primarily hear from Pastor Joel and Pastor Rick. At Good Hope Road, you'll be hearing from Pastor Sean and Pastor John. We still believe in and will continue to utilize the team approach, but we're committed to creating a greater focus on consistency. We've learned that many of you are discouraged when you're unable to attend a Sunday morning service because of work or family commitments. You've told us how much these services impact you positively. So we've decided to move, this fall, we've decided to move the acoustic venue to Sunday nights at 6.30 in the Worship Center Cafe here at Gettysburg Pike. This, uh, this, This fall, this will provide an alternative weekend service time for people who are unable to attend a Sunday morning service. We also learned that many of you appreciate more frequent updates as it relates to the finances of your church. So every week we now give you updates in the scoop. You'll see we have a current shortfall through the first two trimesters of this ministry year. The leadership team made the decision for the staff to run on reduced ministry spending for the remainder of 2012-2013 ministry year, and that runs through August. We've been running in this mode since the beginning of May, And in about six weeks, it has made a significant impact in helping us to stay financially healthy. So if you have any questions about any of these things, one of the elders or leadership team members would be happy to follow up with you. Just write elder follow-up on your response cards today. And a written update of this will be uh, in the next Membership Matters newsletter. Let me close this update in prayer. God, thank you for inviting us into your family and for making Daybreak a family that helps others on a life-changing journey with you. We thank you for your provision. We depend completely on you to provide for us and to further your mission through the people and resources of the Daybreak family. And Father, we want to see your kingdom expanded, each person in our spiritual family transformed. Help us to love each other and to love you. Give us the courage and strength to obediently follow your lead so that your kingdom will come and your will be done here at daybreak. Amen. Amen.
Thank you, Alan. It's, uh, it's an honor to serve with such a tremendous group of elders and leaders in, in, within your church family. Uh, those guys sacrifice an awful lot of time and give themselves to prayer uh, for our church family. And uh, just, I'm very thankful. So, Alan, thank you for your update today. And uh, we are really excited about finding new ways to continue to help our church family grow more than just grow in number, but to help you continue on a journey with Christ that's going to transform your heart and give you every opportunity to experience uh, uh, the next step in your relationship with Jesus. Uh, we are beginning this series entitled Footsteps of Faith, and throughout this summer we're going to take a look at uh, different people and today a particular event uh, that happened and the people who, like you and I, are just trying to be obedient and follow God uh, throughout their journey. As we look through the Old Testament, we've provided a couple of tools for you. One of them is in your outline. Right on the bottom, take out your outline and open it up. You'll see that we're going to have a timeline uh, that each week that runs along the bottom, kind of gives you an idea of where in the course of history uh, these particular uh, people, when they lived or when these events happened. And I hope that that's helpful for you. And I'm going to highlight a few other resources that will be available for you as well. But the this morning, we're going to take a look at the Tower of Babel. I just want to ask, how many of you can ever recall hearing, not a Sunday school lesson, but a sermon about the Tower of Babel before? Like, you actually remember hearing a sermon about that at some point. Okay, a few of you. I have to be honest with you. A couple of you retired pastors here probably have preached one. That's why you're laughing. But I have to be honest with you. I've been in ministry for 20 years, and I don't think I've ever preached a sermon on the Tower of Babel, nor could I actually recall hearing one. Uh, so I hope today might be more memorable for you than apparently it has been for me, if, uh, if I've ever heard one of those. And some, uh, we'll get into the story in just a moment, but really the Tower of Babel is just um, a great reminder to us about how life apart from God can be so destructive, and how harmful our own selfish ambition can be as we uh, move through the journey of life when we uh, try to do life apart from God. So our culture is very image-focused, which I'm sure you're all aware of. Maybe you guys remember back to the 80s, uh, if you were alive then. Uh, uh, in the 80s, Andre Agassi did these Canon commercials that said, image is everything. Does anybody recall such a commercial? Yes, and uh, of course, Andre at the time had his big blonde mullet down the back, and he's in his, uh, his white Jeep with the top down, and in between every shot, they show him, and I only remember this because I just looked at it online, they show him, you know, whacking a tennis ball in between every shot, and there's always just strategically placed off to the side a group of young ladies very interested in whatever Andre is doing in that shot, but the, kept, keeps coming back to this line, image is everything, image is everything, and, and I think it's a huge temptation in our culture to think about our own image and to be a little bit focused on making a name for ourselves or creating an image for ourselves. I think a classic example of this would be class reunions. How many of you have been to a 5, 10, 15, 20-year class reunion? Anybody gone to one of those? Okay, you need to be honest with me now. When you got the invitation for your class reunion and made plans to go, if you did so, how many of you thought extra hard, maybe more so than you would about any other event, about what you were going to drive to that class reunion, what you were going to wear to that class reunion, or maybe what strategic pictures or stories you would want to be told about your life at that class reunion. How many of you maybe spent a little more time thinking about that? Anyone be honest? Yeah, a few of you. And that's kind of funny because it's, class reunions are w usually with people that you don't spend life with anyway, nor will you see them after that particular event again for a long time. 
Why? Why do we do that? Because we want to be successful. We want to be seen as significant or that we've done something that matters by people, even if it's just for a fleeting moment. And I think I read that there are more car rentals for class reunions than for any other event, which I thought was kind of funny. Uh, Make sure you take the rental thing off of the back of the bumper there, you know, around the license plate. But this isn't new for us. This is a part of human history that dates back to the very beginning. And that's what we're going to take a look at today. If you'd open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11, or you can open up your outline, we're going to read through uh, this account of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And uh, we're going to look at the translation, God's Word translation today, which is a little different. We usually use New Living. Uh, But you can follow along either in your Bibles or um, in your outline or on the screens. Let me read for you. It says, The whole world had one language, with a common vocabulary. As people moved toward the east, they found a plain in Shinar, Babylonia, and settled there. They said to one another, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used bricks as stones and tar as mortar. And they said, let's build a city for ourselves and a tower with its top in the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves so that we won't become scattered all over the face of the earth. Now, I want to take a a pause here for just a moment and kind of explain the, the context of this decision. Uh, the people this time set out to build a city with a tower in the center of it. And building towers at this time was the beginning of an ancient practice. At the same time that this was happening, towers were being built in Egypt. Pyramids were being built there. Pyramids were built in, to remember someone. It was basically a tomb. But at this time, they, they built things in other parts of the world called ziggurats. And they were basically kind of like pyramids. They just did more of, more of that because at that time to build a tall structure, you had to, the structure had to support itself. So uh, the base of this tower that they were building, uh, history records, was over 300 feet wide so that they could get the height that they needed as, as the tower went up. But here's the, the significant part. These towers were built uh, as uh, an ancient practice of pride, a monument to themselves. I want you to, essentially, that's what they were. When they would build these things, it was like, let's build a city, build a monument to ourselves. And uh, again, this doesn't end because I just heard the tallest building right now is somewhere in Asia. I can't remember which city. Um, But I just heard on the news this week that China now has plans to build one that is 200 meters higher than the current tallest building in the world. So we continue the practice today of uh, building monuments to ourselves that, uh, that reach to the sky. So let's continue in verse 5. It says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the descendants of Adam were building. The Lord said, They are one people with one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. Now nothing they plan to do will be too difficult for them. Let us go down there and mix up their language so that they won't understand each other. So the Lord scattered them all over the face of the earth, and they stopped building the city. This is why it was named Babel, because the Lord turned the language of the whole earth into Babel. From that place, the Lord scattered them all over the face of the earth. So the story of the Tower of Babel is a warning for us, and it's also an invitation for us. It's a warning for us that God wants us to do life with him in the center of it. It's a, it's, um, and that we shouldn't be, distance ourselves from him. It's an invitation from him to be in relationship with him as we live life, and that's what we're going to dig into today. God invites us to a relationship where we have nothing to prove. God invites us to a relationship where we have nothing to prove. You know, we all want others to know that we're somebody. We all have this innate desire inside of us to feel like we belong or that we have a contribution to make or that we're important or that we matter. 
And oftentimes, I do think it feels for us like we have to prove ourselves. I mean, we feel that way, like, boy, if I'm going to be accepted, if I'm going to be known, uh, whether it's at work or in a family context or whatever, I have to prove my worth or my value. And so did the people in this story. They wanted to make a name for themselves so that they wouldn't be scattered. It says in Genesis chapter 11, verse 4, they said, let's build a city for ourselves and a tower with its top in the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves so that we won't be scattered all over the face of the earth. Or translation, so that we won't be insignificant so that we'll make a mark, so that we'll belong somewhere, so that we'll have a place uh, that we can identify with. Now, some may wonder why the story of the Tower of Babel even made it into Scripture. And we look at, we're going to trace the events of Genesis in just a moment, but basically we have creation, fall, flood, then we have this story, this account of the Tower of Babel, and then we move into Abraham, and, and uh, we begin to see God's, God's plan unfold. Well, I believe the key to understanding the stories in Genesis is really this one key theme that we're going to look at today, and that's God is central to our life. He wants a genuine, authentic relationship with people. He always has. And without God, our choices become self-centered, and we never are able to fully experience love and life the way that God had designed us to experience it. We can't experience it apart from him. So the account of the Tower of Babel begins in chapter 11, but let me review Uh, these themes that lead up to chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, we see the account of creation. God has created us in his image for the purpose of relationship with us. And he gave us freedom of choice, and he actually set up perfect conditions in Eden for us to be able to choose a dependent trust relationship, love relationship with him. Which leads us to Genesis chapter 3 and 4, the fall. God said, choose for yourself, and we made our choice. (laughs) We decided to separate ourselves from God by sinning. And then, after we sinned, God intervened. And the first signs of God's provision for us is that he made a way for us to return to him through the sacrifice of an animal, through the shedding of blood as a pointing out the cost of our sin. And we talked about that at Easter. We've talked about it a lot in the last couple years. That's called atonement. God made a way for you and I to be in right relationship with him through atonement. We kept choosing to to walk away from him, and God said, no, through atonement, I'll find a way to bring us back into right relationship. Well, that leads us to Genesis chapters 5 through 10, which were the account of the flood. So about 2,000 years had passed uh, since creation, and God waits for people to choose to be in a relationship with him, but instead, something awful happens. God's plan for us to be in relationship with him, uh, people choose otherwise. And we come to a pivotal point in the depravity of man where the Bible says this, all day long their thoughts were nothing but evil. And so God chose in that moment to show mercy and to be faithful to a righteous few, basically Noah and his family. And God decided to save humanity through Noah and his family. And so this pact that God makes with Noah after the flood is the first covenant promise that God makes with humanity. God promises that he's never going to destroy us that way again. He's never going to choose that route again. And this promise meant that God would ensure that humanity would have every, they would have their best shot at having a, a relationship, a way to have relationship with him. Now, it's on the heels of all of that history, Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 10, that the account of the Tower of Babel is, uh, is given in Scripture. And we observe, guess what, happening with people at that time? People distancing themselves from God again. 
You have to keep in mind at this time, uh, according to scripture, we're only about four or five generations beyond Noah and his family. So God commanded Noah what? When he when they landed on Mount Ararat and they left the ark, he said part of his command to him was go and scatter, be fruitful. Noah and his sons and their wives, God wanted them to spread out and multiply and fill the earth again. And here when we get to the, the account of the Tower of Babel, only about five generations forward and already uh, they've forgotten the, uh, the heritage of uh, uh, what God had brought uh, their grandfather, their great-grandfather through. And so we see people wondering, wanting to distance themselves again from God. And why? It's the common theme. Because they were afraid of what they might lose. They were out to prove something to the world. People wanted to make their own way again. And the bottom line is this. It's that from the very beginning, you and I, people, are out to display our own greatness, to achieve our own dependence, to make our own way, wanting to live life apart from God. And then we see that after we fail at doing that, we see historically God steps in over and over again and creates a way for us to be restored to him. This is a pattern that we can see down throughout human history. And it's funny has, how so little has changed uh, since uh, the beginning. After all, isn't the whole story of parenting very similar to God's overview of us? Like, I want you to capture this for just a moment. You know, as parents, you try to invest everything that you can and give your kids every opportunity to, to live a safe, successful life. And it seems like along the journey, they just continually choose to do things their own way and try to manipulate in order to do things apart from your direction in life. Uh, we, our youngest right now is a year and a half old. She's 18 months, and she is a total train wreck. She is just a tornado. Like when she goes into a room, uh, yesterday, perfect example, I'm sitting on our couch working on my laptop on today's sermon, and she is it, kind of, I have her enclosed in a couple room spaces right there with me, and she goes over to her book bin, and she just starts She's not looking for a book. She is just destroying the, the area. Then she goes over to her toy bin. It's the same thing, just, just emptying it all over the place. Walks over to the dining room table. There's a ream of paper that's sitting back a little ways on the table. And my first thought is she can't reach that. Sure enough, reaches over the top, gets the edge of the paper, pulls the whole thing, paper, all over the floor. So I'm sitting back thinking... When or, when or if I should intervene in this situation as I watch it happening. Well, then she starts to pick up the clumps of paper on the floor and is just <laughs> throwing them into the air and they're just scattering all over the room. So at this point, I thought, all right, I better go save what I can of the ream of paper before it's all destroyed. Kind of gather it up, put it further into the center of the table uh, where she's unable to reach it. But... Uh, she has also began in the last month to learn how to climb up on things. And so it's not just like getting on a chair, but it's getting on a chair to get on the table then and trying to stand up in the center of the table. So we thought we were childproof, but now we realize we're not again. So now all chairs have to be pushed in at all times right up against the table so she can't uh, make this climb. So I sat back down on the couch after cleaning up the paper and we have one of those baby cubes. They're soft. Um, they're about 18 inches uh, square. And there's activities on different sides of the cube. Well, she has no interest in playing with the activities. She wants to climb up on the cube and then try to get into a standing position on top of the cube. So I'm sitting back thinking, you know, it's only 18 inches. How far, how, you know, how hard could that really hurt? <laughs> and she's going to have to fall sooner or later, but debating when it is that I'm going to intervene uh, if I need to step in and take away from her cube. So as I'm sitting there working on this sermon yesterday, I'm thinking, this is exactly what I believe God our Father does with us. 
He sits back, he tries to provide every opportunity for us to be in a healthy, dynamic relationship with him in which we're going to be able to experience life to the fullest. And we are constantly doing everything we can to thwart his plan and to encourage our own pursuit of whatever it is we want in that particular moment. So as I sit, I I think about God and his deep love for us and his desire for only the best for us. And I look at the course of human history and how we continue uh, to to choose other than, to choose uh, dependence and separation from God, I can't really blame the people who were building the tower at the time. If I put myself back in their time and their shoes, I mean, they're maybe four or five generations removed from Noah, and, and they knew that the flood was a real thing. I mean, they had, had been around. They experienced uh, the result of that. But at this point, they're feeling like, well, we've got to make a name for ourselves. I need security. I can't just trust that, that God is going to provide that for us. So they were just doing what we all do, trying to prove to the world or acting on their fear that, that nothing would ever come of them in this big world and that they might not have meaning unless they go and create it for themselves. And you know, what we believe about our worth and our value drives how we live, I think, way more than we know. Sometimes when we try to get the world's attention, when we're trying to prove something to ourselves or to the people around us, we miss the incredible beauty and uniqueness that God created and designed us to live out. And God invites us instead to understand and reveal the beauty of his image through our lives. God invites us to live as if we have nothing to prove. And when we do, we reveal God's amazing image in us. Look at Genesis 1.27. It says this, So God created human beings in his own image, in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And in Latin, this is called imago Dei, made in the image of God, created in the image of God, created to reveal the greatness of God. You and I are unique. There is no one else who has been created like you. There is no one else who is designed to reflect God's image the way that you were. God designed you perfectly so that some facet of his greatness would be demonstrated, would be exhibited through you. You are not mundane. Your life is not boring. Your life is not without purpose. There is some beautiful piece that God designed to to demonstrate himself through your gifts, through your uniqueness, through your person. And though you might, might not place a high value on some of those things, God has a tremendously high value that he's placed on his image being reflected through you. When God created humanity, it's like he wrote this amazing symphony. And you and I might just be one note in that symphony. And when we think about that, we're tempted to think, yeah, but I want to be more than one note. I want to express myself in some way that's going to be a bigger part of the symphony. And God says, but that note that I designed you to play is so pivotal and so important in the context of where I put you in life and the world that I put you in, that if you don't play it, then people won't see a part of me that I designed them to see. People will miss out on experiencing me. God says, I created you in my image to live out my image. And when we allow our culture and our fears to distract us, then we never make that, we never get to the place where we're comfortable making that beautiful contribution that God intended for us to make. 
And sometimes I think we get in this habit of promoting our wished-for image of ourselves more than what God has really called us uh, to do, and that's reflect his image. Recently, I asked someone on our administrative team here to go into our new database. We have a new database at Daybreak. It's going to be a great tool for all of you. Uh, This summer and in the fall, we're going to encourage all of you to be a part of it. It serves as not only like a church directory, but a way that you can connect with other ministries and people at Daybreak. Uh, We think you're really going to enjoy it and appreciate it. But we're kind of getting it started with the staff and some other groups, and I'm I'm supposed to have a picture in there. So I asked our administrative staff, would you find a picture of me somewhere and just put it in there so my profile has a picture beside it? And so I also asked this person to go ahead and uh, put this on. uh, How many of you are on LinkedIn? It's like a professional network. I needed a picture on there too. I said, just put it on there. So they went out and found a picture of me and put it on there. And I didn't really look at it till maybe a month or so later when I was on uh, one of those things, and, you know, I clicked the little X if you want your picture, and, and I saw the picture. I sat there, and I looked at it for a minute, and I thought, well, they did what I told them to do. They went out and found a picture of me, but I've got this goofy look on my face, just this stupid kind of half grin on my face in that picture, and I'm kind of like, uh, who cares? It's just a picture on a profile, and I sat there for another minute, and I'm like, I care. I think I care. <laughs> I, I think I actually do care that there's a picture in me, of me in there that has a goofy look on it. So, Hold that thought for just a moment. Uh, I did ask them to go and replace that picture. And then I want to ask you, how many of you recently, you had a great day or whatever, you took pictures, you went home at the end of the day, you uploaded some pictures to Facebook from your great day, and you tagged some friends in those pictures, only to get a call or a message from one of those friends within a few minutes saying, please untag me in your photo, because that is not a complimentary photo of me. This happened recently to me, and a family member did, and and they called and said, please untag me. I don't want people to see me that way. And I went back and looked at the photo, and I thought, but that's the way you look. (laughs) Like, (laughs) not in a bad way. Like, I didn't see anything wrong with the photo. I'm like, that's the way I see them. Like, I have no problem. Like, I had no problem with their photo. They apparently had a problem with their photo, but I was confused. I kind of liked the photo. But they didn't like the photo, so they just wanted to be untagged in the photo. So I was thinking about that, and just thinking about how critical we are sometimes, and then I thought back to my own wanting to switch out my profile picture, and I just, I just got to this place where I realized, like, we have this desire to be seen sometimes in a way that is better than reality. Like, it's just so innate for us to have it. And I thought, well, if I do have that goofy grin, maybe people ought to just see me for who I am then. Maybe I ought to just have my profile picture be me with some goofy grin on my face. That would make sense. And this is kind of, we could get into the narcissism of social media and that we're more concerned with what people think we are than what we really are. And we create a life for ourselves. We've talked about that before here at Daybreak. But that's not the point. The the point here today is this. Our key motivation, what's our key motivation here? Um, I'm not making light of the fact that some pictures of ourselves we think are bad, or maybe that some accomplishment in your life is not a good thing. Uh, Those things are fine. The question is, what's going on in your heart that motivates you to want to see your image, have your image perceived in a certain way? God wants us to be set free. He's very clear about this. He wants us to be set free from having to prove our value in the world. God wants us to know that we have nothing to prove in this world, that we're innately valuable to him because we're created in his image, and there's nothing else that we need to know other than that we're created uniquely in the image of God, and that gives us our status. That's our identity. 
That's where we find our confidence. And so we have to decide, are we going to walk through life trying to create an image and a name for ourselves, or are we going to be encouraged by the fact that people can see God's image broadcasted and sent through us? And you might just want to ask yourself, what am I trying to prove? What would I like people to believe about me? This summer, we want to give you every opportunity to live out God's image beautifully through your own life. And the best way that you can do that is to get to know God so deeply, to spend time with him so that you know who he is, you know his love for you, and you are confident about who, who you are in Christ. And we've created a, a number of tools to help you do that. I, I, um, uh, on the back of your program today, let me flip this over. I didn't mention this yet, but on the back of your program, each week as we work through the summer, there's going to be a little section that says for further study. And there's going to be some scripture there. This week gives you an opportunity to look at Deuteronomy chapter 6 to try to meditate on it. It's the Shema. It's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And you, as you read that this week and you meditate on it, you're going to know that God's love for you is, God wanting you to love him is not a selfish thing. He wants you to love him so that you can know how deeply, and, how deeply you're loved by him and that you can be secure in him. And there's also... Uh, scripture passages on here that you can read to get ready for next week as well. In addition to that, out in the Resource Center today, if you want to stop by, there is a Bible reading plan for the summer. It's a 61-day chronological Bible reading plan, and it basically goes through uh, the major stories of Scripture. It's not complete, but it walks you through the major accounts of Scripture, and by the time you got through the end of this summer, you could feel like you got through a significant portion of God's Word. It's just a great tool for you to get to know God, to be, find yourself more secure and realize I've got nothing to prove. My confidence is in God. He loves me. My identity is in him. I reflect his image in this culture. And when we understand that we are imago Dei, when we understand that we're made in the image of God, then we can leave behind the huge distraction of trying to prove ourselves to other people because that's what it is. It's motivated by fear and it's a huge distraction to us living out God's best. And instead, we can enter into a new kind of relationship with God, uh, the kind of relationship that we have when we know we also have nothing to lose. And that's the second point, when we have nothing to lose. And like the people who are building the tower, I think we often think that if we don't succeed, we're not going to be loved or accepted, we're not going to belong anywhere, and we're not going to be important. And that's what the people in the story of Babel suffered from. What was their greatest fear? The Bible says it. Their fear was that they would be scattered that they wouldn't be known, that they would be unaccepted, that they would be outsiders. So they set out to prove themselves. And and I want you to understand, there's a bigger part of the disobedience here because they all knew that God's command to Noah was for them to spread out in the earth and to multiply. So what did humanity do in response to God's command? (laughs) They said, let's come together. And and, And it's disobedience. Let's basically do what God told us not to do. Let's stay together and do one thing so we can make a name for us, so that we'll feel significant. Let's not take the step of faith that God called us to out of obedience and do what he asks. So they set out to prove themselves. And look at how God reacts when they set out to prove themselves. It says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the descendants of Adam were building. And the Lord said, They are one people with one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. Now nothing they plan to do will be too difficult for them. Let us go down there and mix up their language so that they won't 
understand each other. And this is where the story gets really good. I want to dive in a little bit deeper. So the people had this ambition. They had this ambition to, to make something great, but really, they had the ambition to make themselves be great because of what they created. That was the heart of it. Not, let, not just let's create something great. Let's create something great so that we feel great about ourselves. And a lot of biblical history, uh, the Bible has been used to trace history. Uh, it's one of the primary sources of world history is the Bible. And you don't hear that a lot, but it's true. There are other historians. For instance, Josephus is a famous uh, Jewish historian who had a lot of other historical events that they lined up, but they used the Bible as their primary guide and then lined up uh, the rest of human history with it. And uh, another thing that you'll never hear is that really the Bible has never been proven wrong historically. There has never been, even at times when they felt like the, the Bible was proven wrong, uh, they discovered that no, actually the Bible was right and there, were, there was an error elsewhere. But Josephus writes about a man who is mentioned in the Bible as well, He's mentioned in the Bible because he is Noah's great-grandson. He's the grandson of Shem, which was one of Noah's sons. And uh, Josephus talks about him because Josephus believes that he was really the primary source of stirring up the people, gathering them together, and pulling them away from the commands of God in this time. And he was kind of the leader of, of the Tower of Babel. And I love his name. I think it will help you know uh, where this term of endearment came from. But his name is Nimrod, okay? Nimrod. And history says that Nimrod was a man of strong hands, but also a man of strong mind, and a strong influencer of the people of the time. And he's, he's mentioned in Scripture. Um, but at this time, Josephus says that Nimrod came together, stirred up all the people, and said, you need to do this on your own. You need to build this city. And that he was kind of the lead, lead builder on the tower. And his focus, though, wasn't on just let's build something great. It was let's make ourselves great. We can't trust God. So Nimrod was kind of uh, an early Frank Sinatra. The tune that he sang constantly was, I did it my way. We'll do it our way, not God's way. And that's what history actually records was his, was his message. So he built a tower to show his greatness or their greatness. And he actually came up uh, with the first uh, kind of came together with this uh, uh, coating that they could put on the tower that would make it impenetrable to water because most of their building at that time eventually would uh, be, um, the rain would, would kind of destroy it over time. But they came up, he came up with some kind of coating that made it impenetrable to water, which was his great accomplishment that he was known for. So the text records God's descent to the earth, and this is biblical sarcasm, okay? I want you to hear this. When it says what God says um, here, it's almost like it says God is saying from heaven, I can hardly see that puny little structure that they're building down there. So let's go down there and take a look at it and see what it is. That's almost written humorously, uh, the way that it was written biblically. So God is kind of saying, this guy is a Nimrod. No, he's not saying that. I just had to throw that in. God is saying, let's go down there and see what man is up to now. He is trying to make his own way again. And let me go down and see. And you can imagine almost the heartbreak of God as he continues uh, to want to have people be in relationship, his people be in relationship with him. So in other words, God wasn't impressed with their actions to prove their importance. And many of us have spent our lives either taking risks or avoiding risk-taking because deep down we believe that we might lose our value if we fail, if we don't succeed. And we spend our lives in slavery to some of these deep fears that we have within us. 
And God wants to set us free from those insecurities and those fears that we have. God says those don't have a part of a relationship with me. Fear and insecurity are not the basis of a relationship with your creator. And for many of us, this fear is the lens through which we see life. Many of you might be here today and you identify with this. Maybe you see life as a series of events that either proves that you're important or reinforces that you aren't. And if that's your struggle in life and you just feel like my whole life is about proving myself or my worth or my value, God desperately wants to free you from that today. See, that's my des- not, not my design for you. So as a result, when we feel that way, when we feel fear or insecurity about what might come, we try to control things in our life and we try to make decisions as if we have control. And sometimes we lump God into seeing us. We think God sees us the same way that other people see us, so we try to work hard to earn his approval as well. But God doesn't see us that way. And he's, it's not the kind of relationship that he planned for us to have with him. What God is really saying with his actions is this. He's saying, you have nothing to prove because in relationship with me, you have nothing to lose. In your relationship with me, you're secure. There's nothing to lose. God is saying, I want you to love me. I want you to learn how to depend on me. I want you to learn how to trust me no matter what your circumstance is. God is so zealous about a dynamic, real relationship with him that's a trust relationship that scripture records over and over and over again. The course of human history records over and over and over again him going to great lengths to make sure that you and I are completely and totally aware of his deep love and commitment to us and how he longs for us to depend on him and trust him. Throughout the book, Throughout the book of Genesis, throughout the book of Origins, Origins, God was preparing to set up a very special relationship with us. And we're going to start to learn about it next week. It's called covenant relationship. And when we talk about Abraham next week, God introduces it through the life and person of Abraham, and it carries throughout the Old Testament. God is saying, I want you to understand covenant relationship. And all of the first part of Genesis is pointing towards this arrival of this desire for God to be in covenant relationship with people. And covenant relationship is really like saying I do when you get married. It's the first and foremost pledge of trust to someone and to live trustworthy in a relationship with someone just like marriage is intended to be. You know, prior to marriage, you were probably out to impress your, your future spouse. Uh, prior to marriage, uh, I was out to impress my wife. She still mocks me because she worked for Mechanicsburg Parks and Rec Department when we were kind of just beginning to date. And she recalls this day that I showed up to take her out to lunch and, and we were going to play tennis together. And I just happened to come by and she said, I just was reeking of cologne and, you know, all dressed to the nines or whatever. I don't recall it that way at all, but, uh, but that's the way she remembers it. And I think it's probably true because prior to marriage, we're looking to impress I mean, that's our desire, to win the favor of someone, to let them know, to show that we have value and worth and that we, we, we want them to see the, the best parts about us. But once our wedding day, your wedding day comes, you make a whole new kind of commitment and covenant, and it's not about impressing each other anymore. I mean, sure, you still want your spouse to be impressed with you, but we commit on our wedding day to totally trust one another, and we commit to act out that trust in a trustworthy way with each other. And when I got married, I knew things weren't going to be perfect, but we made a commitment till death do us part, and we meant what we said. We said that we wanted to live in a relationship that exemplified trust and honor. And a covenant relationship is the same kind of commitment. In In a true covenant relationship, 
you have nothing to prove and you have nothing to lose. If you are living in a marriage or in a relationship that is a true covenant relationship, there is nothing you need to prove and you have nothing to lose because there's no fear or insecurity in that relationship. If you're in a relationship with God the way he intended it to be and you are in true covenant relationship with him, you have nothing that you need to prove because there is nothing that you can lose when you understand the depths of of God's commitment to you and his faithfulness to you and his love for you. There is no fear in perfect love, the Bible says. There's no fear to be had. God wants this kind of trusted relationship with us and sometimes this means that we have to understand that God loves us so much that he's gonna do anything to ensure that we have the best opportunity to love him in return. And that's what happened with the Tower of Babel. The text says, that God said, now nothing they plan will be too difficult. What did he mean by that? He was saying, these people are likely to trust their success rather than trust me. They're getting a big head. They're gonna build a big tower and then they're gonna think they can do anything apart from me. But God knew that wasn't true. And God knew that, they're, that they were scheming uh, and that their pursuits of their own thing would drive them further and further away from him and that they would never be satisfied or they would never be fulfilled. So God says, I'm gonna scatter you Because if I scatter you, then maybe you'll return to depending on me. And maybe you'll learn how to love me and trust me. And ultimately, that's what's going to bring fulfillment. God took away their ability to communicate with each other in hopes that they would choose to communicate with him again. He thwarted their plans of success so that they might be able to experience his plans of success. And God loves us so much that at times he allows us to walk away from him but then he allows the natural outcomes of some of our own plans for success to bring us to a place where we realize that we desperately, desperately need him. And the point of the story of the Tower of Babel is it's not that God is a distant God or that he's uninvolved in our lives. The point is this. Since the beginning of time, God has been shaping everything in human history to make sure that you and I have every opportunity to have a relationship with him. And that means that sometimes the best opportunities for you and I to trust and to love God in a whole new way come through the most surprising, unexpected circumstances in our lives. I want you to watch this video testimony with me, and it's from an actor, Stephen Baldwin, and I want you to hear how God turned his life around through one of these circumstances. Let's watch. I'd say what was missing was the satisfaction. My life before Christ was uh, focused on making money. My life before Christ was uh, a totally day in and day out uh, existence that was, uh, unbeknownst to me at the time, uh, uh, an existence of self-absorbance. And, you know, just doing what you normally do when you're trying to maintain a career in the movie business. Loving Jesus is what's most important to me. And I know that sounds hokey, but it's the truth. My life is God's life in me for him to do with what he wants. My wife and I were living in Tucson, Arizona about 16 years ago almost, and through the family we hired this cleaning woman. She's working with us for about two weeks, and 
my wife kind of notices her singing that she does every day in her work. Eventually, after a few more days of this, went to Augusta and said, you know, I noticed your singing and um, I was just curious, you know, why is every song about Jesus? Uh, perhaps there's another tune in your repertoire, so to speak. Um, and Augusta had a very interesting reaction uh, to the question. She literally burst out laughing in my wife's face. <laughs> I just had to do that, sir. And Augusta said, you know, again, um, understand that the reason that I'm laughing is uh, you think the only reason that I'm here is to clean your house. Uh, so my wife, she says, honey, um, I, I'd like to share with you something that Augusta just told me. And I said, what's that, dear? And she said, uh, well, she just explained to me that the real reason she's here is because in the future, you and I are going to become born-again Christians, and at some point after that, we're going to have our own ministry. And I said, At that point in my career, I was making more money than I could ever wildly imagine. And just to, to hear uh, that idea vocalized at that point in time was utterly ridiculous. Uh, but um, that's the beginning of the journey for me. When I got to a place of willingness to just simply say to myself, Okay, I'm willing to believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And I'm now going to ask God to show me what that means. And I'm going to read the Bible and apply it to my life to the best of my ability to have that understanding. That's when uh, this whole experience became very, very real for me. So Stephen Baldwin's just living his life, building his tower, and a cleaning lady who has nothing to prove and nothing to lose shows up, and God uses her in order to shake up the circumstances of his life so that he is able to begin what he described, his own covenant relationship with Jesus, that is what is the center of his life. You know, the Baldwin's plan, he and his wife, was for them to make a name for themselves, for him to be successful. But God said, that's not how you're going to find me. So he sent a humble cleaning lady, housekeeper, to kind of upset the apple cart for them. And they found that their biggest fulfillment had yet to be found in the person of Jesus. Listen, we don't know what the end of the story is with the Tower of Babel. We know big picture that they scattered and God, God's will was accomplished anyway. The nations began, different languages, they scattered. The nations began uh, around the earth. We do know that that happened, but individually, we have no idea if they, these people ever chose to return their trust in God. We know some did, and Abraham led them. But we do know that God intervened in a way so that every one of them could have the, that opportunity. Every one of them could. And I want to ask you this morning, are there towers in your life that you're building? What plans do you have? What accomplishments do you rely on, do you bank on, that are trying to provide enough image for you that it kind of eases the fears that you have of not being significant or not leaving a mark or not having impact or not belonging. And do you hear God saying to you this morning, that's, that's not what I want for you. I want a covenant relationship with you. 
And God this morning might want to help you look at your life right now and look back and say, why don't you choose covenant relationship with me and can stop continuing uh, to, to have to be scattered and running from me? Do you know that all the Old Testament teaches us about is this major theme that God loves you so deeply that he is so faithful to you and to humanity that he always has been and that he's going to love you forever. That's the theme of the Old Testament, that God loves you, he's been faithful to you, he's going to love you forever. And the question is, are you going to accept that love from God or are you going to live the lie that says you have something to prove and you have something to lose and you're going to continue to try to make your own way apart from the security that God offers? Would you bow your heads with me? Let's wrap up today in prayer. Before we pray, as your heads are bowed, I want you to think for just a moment. Am I confident that I belong to God? Am I living in freedom today that I have nothing to prove and nothing to lose because of the trust relationship I have with my God through his son, Jesus? And I'm not talking about just do I claim to be a Christian and come to church on Sundays. I'm talking about finding your deepest purpose and meaning in the identity and security that you have in your relationship with God, that you're made in his image, that you reflect his image. God wants to invite you into a new kind of relationship with him, a relationship that you're fully satisfied in, that you're fully alive in. But in order to do that, you're gonna have to stop building towers and place your trust in him. You're gonna have to stop trying to prove yourself so that you can live out Imago Day, And you're gonna have to start listening to God's voice so that you can be free to live out God's dream for you. Father, thank you that we can live life with nothing to prove. Thank you that we're made in your image and that we find our value and our worth in reflecting you. Thank you, God, that we have nothing to lose, that you've designed covenant relationship for us, that we can love and be loved by you, that we can trust and trust you. Lord, thank you that you've made it possible for us to be fully satisfied and fully alive. And Lord, I just want to take a moment to say thank you for stepping in over and over again, not just in the course of human history, but in my life as well, so that I would have every opportunity to live out that kind of relationship with you. Today we choose relationship with you, Father. Today we choose your love and the security that comes with it. We commit to follow you. We belong to you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.
no part of me that you don't know. Your loving family is my home. You are the strength I need for letting go. You use my weakness so I can grow. No tears wasted, your grace has shown that I won't be shaken because I know I belong to you. I can hear your voice. I will honor you. I have made my choice. There is nothing in this world that could be I belong to you. The gifts you've given me are using your name. You have a plan for me every day. You put your heart in me to light the way. And when I cannot see, I move by faith. I live to serve you and I pray each day that you would guide me through. I'm proud to say I belong to you. I can't I belong.